Last Lord's Day we brought a message that we entitled The Problem of Suffering. And we made some comments upon the matter of suffering and how that it is that which the believer needs to reflect upon as a necessity in his life. We used as the text 1 Peter chapter 4 and we were pointing out from that scripture that we are not to think that it's a strange thing, that it's something unusual that we pass through trial. He actually puts it like this in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Uh, We pointed out further that there is such a thing as suffering as a Christian. Verse 16. There is such a thing as suffering according to the will of God. Verse 19. Suffering is the lot of men and women by virtue of the fact that they live in this world. But it is particularly the lot of those who are the Lord's people when they live in this world. Because there are the ordinary trials of life that all people endure. You don't just get sick because you're a Christian. Non-Christians get sick. It's not just believers who lose loved ones. Everybody at some point loses loved ones. Suffering is the lot of mankind. Job put it like this. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He said that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's inevitable. It's something that will come to your life. But there's a way that we are to respond to suffering, to afflictions and to trouble. And it's that that we're considering here at this particular time. I want you to look with me again at the scripture that we read a few minutes ago. Isaiah chapter 43. And notice the first two verses. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. And that's interesting in itself because when he describes the Lord's people initially, he describes them by the old name, Jacob. There's the way we are in the flesh. But then he says, He that formed thee, O Israel. Israel is the name that was given to Jacob. God changed him, made him a prince with God. And so I think there's even an indication here of God's mercy to us in salvation. He refers to his people as Jacob. And we know by experience we still have a lot of the old Jacob in us. But thank God he can call us Israel. Those who have power with God. Those who are princes with God. But he says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Then he says this, When, not if, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When, not if, 
when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. Suffering is the lot of God's people. And we've already spoken a couple of things concerning the reactions of God's people to suffering. What I want to talk about today is that in a time of affliction or suffering, there ought to be a reflection that comes first for believers. The Bible recognizes the fact of our suffering as Christians. We're not to be surprised by it. We're not to think that it's some strange thing. Now, if we go back there to 1 Peter 4, we'll discover that the Apostle is actually speaking primarily of the suffering that comes about through persecution. That's what he has especially in his mind. Suffering that comes upon you by virtue of your association with Jesus Christ. But, here's the thing, the basic premise and the basic principle holds true. We're not to think it's strange when some trouble or trial or affliction comes into our lives. And there are many passages in Scripture in which the Lord promises to be with His people during their times of severe trouble and sorrow. One of those great passages, one of those great promises that the Lord gives is Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2. What is the Lord saying here? He's promising that when we have to go through the waters of sorrow or the fires of affliction and trouble, when we find ourselves in our lives in periods of great difficulty, facing tremendous problems and pressures and perplexities, He wants us to know that He's with us. Those are the words that stand out to me here in verse 2 of Isaiah 43. I will be with thee. I will be with thee. And this is a promise that we need to reflect upon first and foremost in our times of trouble. What do we often do when we're in times of trouble? The first thing we do is have a pity party and nobody else gets invited but ourselves. And we feel really sorry for ourselves. And our attitude the whole time is, woe is me. But our first thought should be, <clears throat> even in our trouble, the Lord is with us. God has not disappeared. The Lord has not fled the scene. The Lord has not vacated the throne. The Lord has not decided to abandon us and leave us to ourselves. He says, when thou passest through the waters and through the rivers, when thou walkest through the fire, I will be with thee. The rivers will not overflow thee. The fire is not going to burn you. The flame will not kindle upon you. This is a great promise. Now I want us to think about three things concerning this promise. Number one, the announcement of the promise. The announcement of the promise. It is a beautiful word all on its own. But when you look at it in its context, it becomes even more precious. 
And it causes us to adore the God of grace and mercy. Because you see, the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 42, there I go again saying Isaiah, chapter 42 and verse 20, it says, Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. What is it talking about? It's talking about the spiritual deafness and the spiritual blindness of God's people. He actually refers to the deaf and the blind in verse 18. Chapter 42, verse 18. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? And blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. What's it saying? It's saying that the people are full of sin and rebellion against God. They had sinned by ignoring his revealed will and purpose. And the result of that was, verse 24 of chapter 42, For they would not walk in his ways. See that at the end of the verse? They would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. They were doing their own thing. They were doing their own will. And what happens when that takes place? Well, verse 25. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger, and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. So the Lord put his hand out against them in chastisement. Interesting, isn't it, to read all of that? And we can reflect upon our own sins and our own rebellion against God. And the fact that the slightest little thing that goes wrong with us, we start blaming the Lord, and we may not do it actually, literally, but we do it figuratively, we shake our fist in God's face. You might expect then, you read on into chapter 43, that there's a continuation of this. The Lord pouring out His anger and His wrath upon them. The frightening consequences of rejecting God. But in fact, chapter 43 is anything but that. Because it begins like this. But now thus saith the Lord, Jehovah is the word, that created thee, O Jacob. And he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Think of this. In spite of their rebellion, their sin, their waywardness, their turning away from his law and his word, he still says, you're mine. You belong to me. Now that's not the Lord condoning their sin. That's not the Lord saying, don't worry about your sin, it's fine. That's not what God is saying. But what it is, is an evidence to each one of us of the grace and mercy of our God. Grace, as the hymn puts it, that's greater than all our sin. John Bunyan wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's based on that scripture in Romans, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
The Lord is merciful even to their transgressions. You see, the love of God, the care of God for his people, is not dependent upon their faithfulness. I want you to understand this. People might think, well, that's, isn't that going to encourage people just to sin against the Lord? If they think, well, if I sin, the Lord's still going to be merciful to me. Isn't that going to encourage what we might call antinomianism, where we will not worry at all about what God's law says because the Lord's always going to be merciful to us. No, not at all. It has the opposite effect. When we realize the mercy and the grace of God to us in spite of what we are, how it makes us love Him more. How it causes us to want not to mess up again. We want to serve the Lord. Years ago, I, when, when I was working in secular employment, there was a guy that worked alongside me who was of what we call an Arminian persuasion. He believed that you could lose your salvation. I remember he was horrified when I told him that you could not lose your salvation. He said, well, what if you sinned greatly against the Lord and you died? Wouldn't you go to hell? I said, no, you wouldn't. He said, well, surely that's going to encourage people to sin. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's how you're taking it. That's not how I take it. God's grace and mercy to me causes me not to want to sin. It causes me when I do sin not to want to do it again. Because of His love and His mercy. And His kindness and His goodness. Like a parent with a child. The child is disobedient. The child is insolent. Speaking back or whatever it may be. And you chastise the child. But does that mean that forever there's no relationship between you and the child? That you never will put your arm around them or... Or love them or kiss them or assure them of your love? Of course it's not like that. And God in a far higher and greater sense is like that parent. His love for us is unconditional. Some people in this world work in jobs that are performance based. We know all about that, don't we? They have to meet targets. Uh, They will be in the boardroom sitting and making all these decisions about things and they set these targets and they have these targets for their workers. And if that worker or that worker doesn't meet those standards, they don't either get paid or they get fired because their job is performance-based. I can tell you God's salvation is not performance based. The idea that, oh well, I haven't had a good week, therefore I can't pray today. It's completely false. How do I know that? Because the Lord Jesus said when he taught us to pray the disciples' prayer, one thing that we always have to say is, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. Now, you wouldn't have to say that, would you, if you didn't have any? The very fact that the Lord tells us to come and confess our sins proves that we are a sinful people, but we don't want to be. That's the key. We don't want to be. 
And that's what happens when you get saved. God changes something on the inside called your want to. There was a time when I wanted to run after sin. That's what I loved. That's what I was living for. That's what I was aiming to do all the time without a care in the world. But then when I came to Christ, I didn't want to do those things anymore. The Lord changed my want to. Like the little chorus says, things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to Jesus. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to Him. That's how it is. God's love and God's care for you, believer, is not dependent upon your faithfulness. It is dependent upon His great love and His own holy character. See, there's a lot of times in our Christian lives when, by our actions, we would appear to forfeit God's blessings. But in such situations, our loving God surprises us. Our Father in Heaven surprises us with beautiful tokens of love and care. And those mercies of God don't cause us to have the attitude that God's grace is to be trifled with. But quite the opposite. You do something that's not exactly very nice to somebody else and then they do something nice toward you. What effect does that have on you? <laughs> feel like a heel. You don't feel very good, do you? I didn't speak very well of that person. I, I did something toward that person. Look how they repaid me with kindness. It causes me to have a whole different spirit toward that person. The mercies of God don't cause us to trifle with His grace, but rather they humble us, they overwhelm us, and our hearts respond with a greater desire to please Him. The Lord says, I am with you. What a promise that is. And we can think about the announcement of the promise. It's in keeping with many other promises in the Word of God. The Lord tells us, I am with you. But as well as the announcement of the promise, I want you to think about the author of the promise. Who is the one that's speaking here? Who is the one that's saying this? Well, verse 1 tells us, But now thus saith the Lord, You've heard me often enough say that in the Old Testament, in the English Bible, when you see the word Lord or God, L-O-R-D or G-O-D, in large capitals, in the uppercase, in the original Hebrew, it's always, and I mean always, Jehovah. Every time. Jehovah, which is the name of the covenant-keeping God. Jehovah suggests to us the I Am. The one who keeps His promises. And that's so significant here. Now thus saith Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God that created thee, and he that formed thee, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I've called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Who is this one making the promise of verse 2? It's Jehovah. It's our Redeemer. 
And he says it again in verse 3. For I am the Lord thy God. I am Jehovah thy God, the Holy One of Israel. The one that's making the promise is one who cannot lie because he's the Holy One. And notice he says, thy Savior. This is the one who's who's making the promise. He's our Savior. And by the way, he's the only Savior. You read that again, don't you? Down in verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, or Jehovah, and beside me there is no Savior. That's who's making the promise. This is the author of this word. You know when someone makes a promise to you, sometimes you're going to either believe that or not believe it according to the one who's making the promise. See, the sad thing is in this world there are people who will promise you the earth. They'll promise you the stars. And they don't deliver. Have you ever had that happen when you need something done and you call a tradesman? Oh, I'll be there in the morning. Such and such a time. The morning comes... He's not there. And he's not there the next morning either, or the next morning. I had a mechanic once, and I knew fine well, if I left my car to be fixed with him, I wasn't seeing that car for three or four days. That's just the way it was. There is absolutely no way that he would get that fixed when he said he would. Oh, it'll be ready by five o'clock tonight. Never ready at five o'clock tonight, or the next day, or the next day. So guess what? I don't go to that mechanic anymore. There are people who make promises, and they, they don't keep their promises. Either they can't, or they won't. But that's not the Lord. But it is true that a promise is only as valuable as the one who's making it. And any fool or liar can make the best promises, but they're either unable or they're unwilling to fulfill those promises. Now it's a great thing when you're going through troubles when another Christian comes alongside, could be a pastor, could be an elder, could be some Christian friend, and they're willing to stand by you in your time of trouble. That's a great thing. They can help us to carry the burden. And it is good for us to do that. We're taught in the Bible to do that. And as Christians, we can thank the Lord for one another. But listen, over and above all of this, God Himself is the one who makes the promise, I will be with you. Whatever happens in your Christian life, I will be with you. I will be right there with you. He's the author of the promise. Notice how God's described in this portion of Scripture. He's the God of creation. Verse 1. The Lord that created thee, O Jacob, he that formed thee, O Israel. He's the mighty God. He's the almighty God. He's the omnipotent God. He's the eternal God. And he is the God who cares for us. He's the God who makes the promise. He's able to keep his promise. He's the God of history. Verse 3, he talks about what happened earlier in Israelite history. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. He's talking about historical events. The reference in verse 3 to Ethiopia 
takes us back to Cush, Second Chronicles chapter 14. If you were to study that passage, you would see that the king who was called Asa was faced with an enemy that was so far superior to any that he could possibly muster that the situation seemed hopeless. And when you go back there to Second Chronicles chapter 14, you'll find that Asa prayed unto the Lord. Let me just take you to this portion. Second Chronicles 14. And it says in verse 11, And Asa cried unto the Lord, there's it again, Jehovah his God, and said, Lord, Jehovah, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, there it is again, Jehovah, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. That's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 43 and verse 3. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. The result of Asa's prayer was a great victory for the Lord's people. You know, as the Lord's people, sometimes we're prone to forget how mighty God is. How He is able to work on our behalf. He's the author of the promise. We sang again today that hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. The third verse, the third stanza of that says... When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Those words are actually founded upon Isaiah 43 verse 2. You can see the similarity. When I pass through the waters, I will be with thee. Through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Think about our troubles. They're likened to deep waters and flooding rivers. The prophet is really alluding here to when God's people face the problem of the Red Sea. If you go back in history, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 14, I believe it is, you'll see there that they faced the Red Sea ahead of them. The enemies were at their back. There were mountains on either side. They had nowhere to go. There was nowhere for them to go. To go back was not an option because that meant death. They couldn't go up the mountains on either side. Millions of them, with their children and with their cattle and so on. And there's this massive sea ahead of them. What were they going to do? Well, they prayed, didn't they? And when Israel out of bondage came, a sea before them lay. The Lord reached down his mighty hand and rolled the sea away. 
The hymn writer says, Then forward still tis Jehovah's will, though the billows dash and spray. With a conquering tread we will push ahead. He'll roll the sea away. This is what the Lord is able to do. No human being could ever carve a path through the Red Sea. There was another time then later when they came to the Jordan River at flood stage. What were they going to do? Well, we're going to have to look to the Lord. And the Lord opened up the Jordan River and they passed over into the promised land. This is the Lord who says, I will be with you. Whenever I was a child, I must confess, like many other young children, I was afraid of the dark. I didn't like the dark. And we would be down in the living room, and our bathroom was up a set of stairs into the left. I remember it very well. But I never wanted to go up to the bathroom at night time because it was dark. Or I wanted to put a light on, but if the light wasn't working, I wasn't happy. And I remember many a time when it was dark, my mother used to say, It's all right. I'm with you. It's okay. I'm with you. Don't worry. I'm with you. And that took all the fear away. Didn't matter that it was dark. Could have been pitch black. As long as I was able to know that my mum was nearby, I could hear her reassuring voice. It's all right. I'm with you. That's what the Lord says to us in our time of trouble. I'm with you. Oh, I know you're afraid. I know you're scared. I know you've got a lot of fears. And you're wondering what in the world is going to happen. But the Lord says, I am with you. This is our God. This is the author of the promise. He is the one who makes the promise. And that's what makes all the difference. And God tells us in Isaiah 43 why he makes this glorious promise. Because he says in verse 1, I have called thee, well, I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Thou art mine. This is what God has said. And that statement is actually amplified, if you like, in, in the fourth verse. Because he goes on to say, Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honourable, and I have loved thee. Notice it's not in the present tense that he says this. He said, Thou wast precious in my sight, and I have loved thee. Doesn't that bring us back to the doctrine of sovereign election? Did you ever think about the fact that there was never a time, believer, when God did not love you? There was never a time when He didn't love you. In fact, he he says in this book of Jeremiah, chapter 31 and verse 3, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee. Notice that he doesn't say, I love you. He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's why the Lord saved us. Because He loved us from eternity. That's why He redeemed you. That's why He called you by your name. Because He loved you from all eternity. Can you find a reason for that? I can't. There is no reason outside of God's purpose. What an amazing truth that is. What a humbling truth that is. Loved with everlasting love. Led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above. Thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, the full and perfect peace. I am his. And he is mine. These are remarkable statements in Isaiah 43. I have loved thee. Who is it that's precious to the Lord? Surely it's not me with all the doubts and the fears that I have, the disobedient, rebellious heart that I have. But if you've come to Christ, He has loved you, He does love you, He will always love you. He is with you. He always will be with you. What a promise this is. A promise that is given to a Christian, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and called by the Spirit of God, by His grace, out of the darkness of sin, into the marvelous light of the gospel. If you're a Christian this morning, God here is promising you, as He promised Israel, to be with you in your times of trouble, because you belong to Him. And he cares deeply about you. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Notice then the appropriation of the promise. We've talked about the author of the promise. We've spoken about the announcement of the promise. Think about the appropriation of the promise. See, here's the thing. And it is a tragedy. Though our Heavenly Father makes all sorts of promises just like this. It seems that many believers go through times of trouble and affliction, trials, whatever it may be, the fires of sorrow and trouble, and they don't seem to know anything of the sweetness of God's presence. It's as if the Lord is nowhere to be seen. And yet, as has been said, the fault here is not God's. It is ours for failing to claim the promise. You know what Peter said about the promises of God? They're given to us. They're gifts. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What I need is for the Lord to enable me to lay hold on His promise. I need the Lord to help me by faith to grasp His promises and realize they are for me. This is for me. I can appropriate this word today. It's not a word just for somebody else. It's a promise that I can make real in my experience. 
How are we going to be able to appropriate the promise? This is the difficulty. How can we appropriate God's promises? How can we make them ours? How can we hug them to our breast and say, yes, this is a word for me? Well, we have to remember two things. I've already spoken of one of these. Remember who it is that you are, number one. Who are you? Can you say with the hymn writer, now I belong to Jesus Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Can you say that? Because if you have come to the Lord and you've asked the Lord, Lord, save me by thy grace. His promise is, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a call from the heart. That's a call of repentance. That's a call of faith. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise, it means under no circumstances, cast out. You're not going to come to the Lord with a sincere heart desiring to be saved. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to save you. Quite the opposite. I would posit to you that the Lord is more willing to save you than you are to be saved. He wants to save sinners. He will save sinners. So get this settled. Do I belong to Jesus? Have I come to Him? If you do, you belong to God. You're a Christian. You can look for and you can expect the Lord's help. But you know what happens sometimes in our trials? We start behaving like non-Christians. We act and we have the attitude of people that are not saved. What do unsaved people do in their troubles? They grumble. They moan. They become bitter. There's a little song that used to be sung, Grumble on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Grumble on a Thursday too. Grumble on a Friday, grumble on a Saturday. Grumble the whole week through. We're like that sometimes, aren't we? And why do we do this? Because we forget who and what we are. Look at the scripture again. The Lord is actually speaking to some people. In this case, it's the people of Israel and Judah. O Jacob, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I'm your redeemer. I've redeemed you. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You belong to me. And because this is true, When you pass through the waters, you pass through the fire, I'm going to be with you. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Thou wast precious in my sight. So verse 5, fear not, for I am with thee. There it is again. I am with thee. Are you a Christian? Then you're precious to God. Have you called upon the Lord to take your sins away? Then He is your Redeemer. You don't belong to Satan anymore. You belong to Him. The Lord is able and He's willing to help you. The children of Israel should have known that above all people because when they look back at their history, they'd seen God's almighty power demonstrated time and time and time again. Brought out of the bondage of Egypt. That was God who did that. With a high hand he brought them out. 
brought them into freedom, redeemed them, led them all the way to the promised land, fed them with manna from heaven, from water, he gave water to them out of the rock. There was a fiery pillar at night to guide them, that pillar was cloudy during the day. Every time they set off in in, in journeying, that pillar was there, they could see it. It led them the whole way. The Lord never left them. What happened when Pharaoh let them go initially? Read it in Exodus chapter 12 and thereafter. Pharaoh changed his mind. I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have let them go. We're going to pursue after them. That's exactly what he did. What for? To bring them back to slavery. Just like the devil would love to do with you as a Christian, to pull you back into the old life. To get you back to Egypt. And so what did the Lord's redeemed people do? When the Red Sea was ahead of them and behind them, there were the armies of the Egyptians. They panicked. Initially they didn't pray, they panicked. You know why? Because they forgot who they were. And they thought that because they were in a helpless and hopeless situation, therefore the situation was indeed actually hopeless. And Moses had to say to them, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord today. Be still and know that I am God, is the word that you find in Psalm 46, verse 10. Remember, brother, sister, in your time of trouble, you are redeemed by God, you are loved by God, you are precious to Christ. And even though your situation seems hopeless, it's not hopeless. Because God has made us his people and he is a God of his word. He means what he says. We sang earlier, didn't we, Psalm 23? Some of the words of that are the metrical version of the verse even, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Remember who you are. You're redeemed. You're loved. You've been called. And you're precious to him. But then the second thing you have to remember is who God is. We've already talked about the author of the promise. Think of who God is. Don't be afraid to trust Him. To trust Him completely. There's a number of verses in the Bible where you, where you will read the this, this statement, He is able. He is able to do far more exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is able to succor them that are tempted and so on. There are many scriptures like that. The Lord is able. He is able He's not just willing, he's able to help us in our times of distress. Now if you were to turn to Daniel chapter 3, you will see an illustration of what happened in Isaiah 43, or verse, uh, rather not what happened, but what was promised would happen in Isaiah 43 verse 2. Did you notice that he not only says when I pass through the waters, our troubles are sometimes compared to floods, but he said, when thou walkest through the fire... Thou shalt not be burned, 
neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Oh, what a great promise that would have been for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That's not how you learned them in Sunday school, by the way. I can guarantee that. In Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, they probably told you all about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But those were the heathen names that were given to them. Those were not the birth names given by their parents. Because the birth names given to them by their parents had the name of God in them. Hananiah, in there you have Jehovah. Azariah, again, Jehovah. Mishael, El is the word for God in Hebrew. So here they are with these godly names and the pagan Babylonians changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So why do Christians always call them Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? It's a good question, isn't it? My parents called me Stephen because he was the first Christian martyr. Read all about him in Acts chapter 7. My mother loved that name. She loved that story. When she was expecting me in those days, she didn't find out all this gender reveal and all that nonsense. It was just, you, you got what you got, right? This is what she got, for good or ill. But she already had two girls. She wanted a boy. She got her boy. She wanted his name to be Stephen. And that the Lord would make him a preacher. Imagine people starting to call me some heathen name, some pagan name. Ahmed. Not that there's anything wrong with being called Ahmed if you come from that culture. But I certainly wouldn't want somebody calling me Mohammed. Mm-mm, no. Or Judas Iscariot. No. No. No, Stephen will be just fine. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Learn those names. Those were their godly names. But anyway, I'm kind of digressing. But I think it's an important digression. What happened to them? Daniel chapter 3. They wouldn't do as the heathen king told them. See, the world wants you to do things in a certain way. And the believer, when he reads the word of God, he says, "Mm -mm, No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to obey. If the government tells me I have to worship an idol, no, I'm not worshipping idols. Oh, there's a decree that's come down on high. The White House says we've all got to worship this particular heathen religion from now on. No, no, we're not doing that. Well, the penalty for not worshipping is to be thrown into a fiery furnace, to be burned to a crisp. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael said, no, mm -mm, no. We're not going to be bowing to the image that the king has made. We're not going to be bowing down when they play their Babylonian rock music. No. We'll go to the fire. And what happened? You can read about it in Daniel chapter 3. From verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what he called them. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. 
And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound to their coats, in their coats, their hosen and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of that. Their executioners died. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, watch this, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I can tell you the form of the fourth was the Son of God. He was fulfilling his word, even as he said it here in Isaiah 43 verse 2. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Why? I am with thee. Jesus was with them when they were in the midst of the hottest fire. God keeps his promises. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now some may look at this and say, well yeah, that's fine for them. But what about Christians sometimes who were persecuted and they were killed? What about them? What about those who were not miraculously delivered? You know, we read in Acts chapter 12 about Peter being in prison. They were going to execute him and the Lord delivered him. But earlier in that chapter we see that Herod took James, the brother of John, and killed him with the sword. What about those Christians who are not miraculously delivered? Those whose bodies and minds are racked with the pain of disease and they finally die. How does God's promise apply to them? Well, we think about Stephen. My namesake, or maybe I'm his. Because of a stand for the gospel, Stephen was stoned to death. The enemies of God threw rock after rock probably breaking his head open, breaking his ribs, his bones, until he died. But what do we read about Stephen? At the end of Acts chapter 7, the Lord gives this testimony. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But just prior to that, what do we read? He, verse 55, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. When you read in the book of Hebrews about Christ being our great high priest, at the right hand of God, he's seated 
He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But here Stephen saw him standing. And more than one preacher commentated, more than one commentator says, that was the Lord Jesus Christ standing in honor of his servant. As he was dying for his cause, for the cause of the gospel, the Lord honored him in that way. Yes, the Lord was with him. Yes, the Lord ministered to him even in this time of persecution and death. And it's still no less true that the Lord would say to Stephen, I am with thee. The great thing is, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that means that Stephen is now with him. Stephen is now with him. Sometimes we have a tendency, don't we, to look at scriptures and promises and what happened in certain people's lives. Well, that was all right for them, but that's not me. That was Stephen, and I'm not really a Stephen. Or that was the three Hebrew children, and that's not me. But how does that matter? The promises of God are not given just to hyper-spiritual Christians or, or super-Christians, but to those whom God has redeemed. And every redeemed person is as redeemed as the next one. Peter talked about that. Those who were of like precious faith. It means faith of the same kind. There's no pecking order where God is concerned. These are more redeemed than these ones. We're all equally redeemed if we're redeemed. We're all equally able to take God at His word and get the blessing from His promises. See, the Bible's not a book of theory. It's the word of the living God. And when God says in your time of trouble and difficulty, I will be with thee, you can believe that. You may not see the Lord in the trial. You may not feel the Lord near you in the trial, but he's there. He's there. Go back to that illustration of when I was a kid. It was dark. I wouldn't have to even touch my mother's hand. Her voice was enough. It's all right. I'm here. I'm with you. That was enough. It should be enough for us, brethren and sisters, to see God's word. And what does he tell us in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6? And be content with such things as you have. Verse 5 says, For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And in the, in the Greek language there are five negatives. It's a quintuple promise. I will never, 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 never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. When through these deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress.